As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with Dr. Rebecca Jeffroy Schwinden, an assistant professor of music in UNT's College of Music. Dr. Jeffroy Schwinden is a specialist of music in enlightenment, revolutionary, and Napoleonic France, and her work frequently intersects with the field of women's studies and audible history. Her research is concerned with the politics of musical production and the valuation of musical labor as capitalism emerged during the early age of revolution. She is especially interested in how individuals engaged with the changing laws, policies, and politics governing musical activities. Her deeply archival research crosses institutions, listening for individual stories that together complicate traditional historiographic narratives of music around 1800. Having earned two bachelor degrees from Penn State in 2007, one from Schreyer Honors College with a specialization with honors in history and another in international studies. Dr. Jeffroy Schwinden went on to earn her master's degree from Duke University in musicology in 2011 and her PhD from Duke University in 2015. She teaches courses on music research, 18th century music, women's studies, audible history, and choral and opera literature. Her research on music and enlightenment, revolutionary and Napoleonic France has been published widely in journals including Women in Music, Studies in 18th Century Culture and Music and Letters, and has earned recognition from the American Musicological Society and Music and Letters. Dr. Jeffroy Schwinden has also served as a Dallas correspondent to Opera News, published since 1936 by the Metropolitan Opera Guild in New York City, and as vice president of the Society for 18th Century Music. Welcome. It's so good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
I have to say, your research into the world of music is fast, and we could go down some very interesting roads. Let's begin by hearing about how your interest in music evolved, particularly to what drew you toward 18th century music in particular. Well, it's a bit of a long, convoluted story, (laughs) but... I played the piano and mallet percussion when I was growing up. I was fortunate enough to be at a a public school that had a good band program, and my parents were able to pay for piano lessons, and so I always enjoyed music. But I also enjoyed mock trials, so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a lawyer. That was kind of my safety plan when I was in high school, but what I really wanted was to write for Rolling Stone. (laughs) And so I started college as a journalism major with a music minor not because I was fascinated with music, but because I was fascinated with musicians. And I very quickly switched to a history major because I did not like journalistic writing. And I had always enjoyed our kind of history-focused family vacations and historical fiction when I was growing up. And so I guess it wasn't surprising when I got into my music history survey courses as an undergraduate that I really enjoyed those. But on one of my history exams sophomore year, there was a question, and it was whether the French or the American Revolution was more revolutionary. And I became completely obsessed with this question. And so what I ended up doing was writing my senior thesis, uh, considering this question through the lens of music. And as a result of that project, I had two really influential advisors. One who was a musicologist asked me when I was about to graduate, have you ever thought of being a musicologist? And I thought, no, I didn't even realize that was a job until a few years ago, you know. And when I left undergrad, I went to work at a corporate law firm in New York City in mortgage-backed securities in 2007. And while I was doing that job, my other advisor didn't tell me that he had submitted an abstract to one of the papers that I had written to an 18th century conference, a regional one in the area. And he just contacted me and said, you know, your paper was accepted. The conference is in Atlantic City. Will you come and and give your paper? And I had no idea how academic conferences worked. And this trip, this really kind of sealed my fate. And usually when people say a trip to Atlantic City sealed their fate, you're thinking this is going in a very different direction than becoming a historian. But I learned what it meant to be a scholar of the 18th century. And, you know, I had that encouragement from him and from my undergraduate advisor. And so I started taking night classes at Juilliard to make up for some of my music theory credits that I hadn't taken when I was in my undergraduate degree. And I just decided I had to answer this question, what about music and the French Revolution? And what happened to musicians when modern democracy was forged under the age of revolutions? And So far, what I've uncovered is that we're still living that revolutionary legacy because it was the birth of a particular kind of modern musical labor that has capitalism as its basis. That is a great story. I love the way that everything went down a certain path to get you into such an interesting career. It speaks so much about following interest and having good instructors and the whole picture. Yes, it can make all the difference when you have a professor who just tells you that they realize you have a talent for something. I don't think as professors, we always realize that we can have that kind of impact. 
Right. And what an impact they had on you, just the question in the test. Exactly. (laughs) I am intrigued by your exploration of the history of music as it relates to women, among many other things. We know about the genius of Beethoven and Mozart, but I cannot seem to bring any women musicians from that time to mind. Why is that? Was it that there were no women of any musical talent then? Well, the past and the present kind of collude to hide women in music from this time period. The present hides it because we continue to hold musical values that came down to us really from the 19th century, that when we say musician, what most people actually think of is a composer who wrote down a piece of music. And so part of the problem is our definition of musician that comes to mind, because when you say, think of a woman musician, you're trying to think of a woman who composed a piece of music, and you're not thinking of a woman singing or playing the piano at home or something like this, right? So that's one reason that we can't always call them to mind immediately. And the other reason is that women had limited opportunities in the 18th century, right? So just like it would be difficult to come up with a list of women who had been lawyers or judges or senators during that time period, it's a similar situation where where women just had fewer opportunities to, to advance in the professional world. Yeah, I would imagine that the view of women in European society during Beethoven's lifetime from, say, the 1770s to the 1820s must have had a lot of effect on women, just as it did, say, in our country. And I'm thinking maybe the 1920s, right? Their place was at home. Well, yes. And Yes. Uh, women were, I mean, it's, it is true. I get, of course, I always hesitate because I'm always thinking of the details, right? Like that we can't generalize too much. And it's true that there were certain expectations for what women were, what they were supposed to do in society. But that didn't mean that there weren't women who were incredibly influential, right? And so I mean, to, to take one example, we can think of Maria Theresa, who was ruling from Vienna and who had all of these daughters who she married off to European royalty all over the continent and ended up with this kind of soft power for the Habsburgs that is incredible. And and part of the reason that they were able to do that was because they were women. And so there were expectations for women and there was certainly a strain of enlightenment thought that did put women in the same kind of level as men, where they were respected as thinkers and writers. But of course, there was also the other side of that was this fairer sex discourse where gendered differences relegated women to particular activities. And so when we think of all that in terms of music, there was this kind of feminine ideal in music. This is something that the musicologist Matthew Head talks about in his book, The Sovereign Feminine, there was an ideal that music itself almost had this kind of feminine beauty and that women had a particular melodic gift because they were in themselves beautiful. And, mm. and so it's, it's a bit paradoxical. And so that's why when I, my first response is yes and yes, because, <laughs> because it's, it's a bit paradoxical. And the level of propriety that was expected in music was always also about class. 
And so performing for money would not have been appropriate for women who were of a certain status. But if a woman had no other option, it was actually perfectly acceptable for her to perform or compose music in order to support her family. Women were expected to perform music for their social circle, right, to entertain their family and friends. And so that propriety was something that was always also about class and, of course, race, too. Was that true in terms of their counterparts? I mean, did the male composers and the male musicians, did they accept the women that came into their area of influence? Some some did and some didn't. But we perfect examples, you know, you can find so many pieces of music by Mozart or Haydn or Beethoven that were dedicated to women musicians, performers who they very much respected and expected that those women would be the people who would play the music that they composed. And so you oftentimes have almost these partnerships that perhaps one wouldn't expect when we think that there was, there was so much restriction. There were men who were happy to teach women musical skills, to tutor them, and to collaborate with them. So it, it wasn't unheard of for women to be accepted into those practices. Were they also allowed access to advanced education in composition and the opportunity to publish their own music? Advanced education is kind of a tricky concept when you're thinking about 18th century musical training, because really a a child growing up, if you're not of a more privileged class, your opportunity to learn music would probably have been if you ended up in a cathedral school, so you're singing at a church, or for example, in Italy, you had the conservatories in Naples and you had the Ospedali in Venice. So the conservatories is where you would send little boys and they would basically train like an apprenticeship training for any other artisanal skill and they would learn how to be a musician. The Ospedali was for women. Women would learn, they weren't only for women, but women would learn music there. They were basically orphanages, but they were also really somewhere that women could possibly live for their entire lives. And so you have to understand that Venice was basically the Las Vegas of 18th century Europe. And so there was a lot of prostitution there and there were a lot of unwanted children. And there were a lot of children born with deformities. And so people would just drop them off at these ospedali and some of the girls would end up spending their lives there. They would be trained on any instrument. They would learn to to perform and then they would perform in the churches. Tourists would go and hear them, but they would perform behind screens so that nobody saw them so that it kind of maintained decorum. So there were some opportunities, and women would would have opportunities to be tutored in the home in music as well. And so composition, though, specifically, was, was pretty rare that it would be taught to women, at least as far as we know in Europe and early America. It was a little bit more common in France. So did a lot of women composers at that time, were they basically from musical families and were they taught at home? 
Oftentimes, they were from musical families or uh, a family of court musicians or aristocratic, you know, people who were nobles. Many of those women, like Marie Antoinette, growing up in Maria Theresa's Vienna, she always had music around her and music lessons as she was growing up, and that's why Marie Antoinette was a was a pretty accomplished musician. So usually, it was due to some kind of family connection. Yes. So in light of what you're saying, did maybe it wasn't necessary for women to have special strategies in order to get their music played. I guess I was just under the impression that women in that time in Europe were a lot like women in the early days of the United States, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like they were much more enlightened. So did they not have to take special steps to get their music heard or to play their music in front of others? Is that what you're saying? Well, to clarify, it was rare for a woman to be composing pieces and getting them out there, right? It just wasn't as common for women, but it wasn't common for anyone to identify as a composer exclusively. And that's kind of the the key to this this perception that we have now, when we think composer, right? Whereas in the 18th century, most musicians were not only composers, they were also always performers and teachers and you know they they wore a lot of different musical hats and women wore many of those hats but they usually didn't wear the composer one and so that's kind of the difference and women you know even in early america women were manuscript collectors so you did have women participating very dynamically in musical life but they weren't acting the way you would expect a kind of entrepreneurial composer to be acting Well, I know in the world of literature, many women, or not many women, but there have been women that have assumed male names to their works of literature. For example, Marianne Evans, who wrote in the 1800s as George Eliot, and even in our own time, J.K. Rowling, she was encouraged by her publisher to use her initials so that she didn't have a woman's name on her work, her Harry Potter work, so that it might not put off some of her male audiences. Did any of that go on in this time with music? It was a little more challenging for a woman to pull that off in music because composers were performers and so they were usually seen by people right? So if you were going to become a known composer, you were probably known as a performer first. And so it's a little bit trickier for women to have pulled that off compared to in literature, where you never necessarily see the author. But there were women who published under their own names, even as early as the the 17th century, Jacques de la Guerre. She was a a composer in the late 17th century in France, and, and she published her own works. There were women composers who had their operas performed during the revolution, like uh, the French Revolution, like Julie Candé. And so I'm not aware of, of many cases where women used some kind of pseudonym to publish music. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I think that it would have been a little less common than you would expect in literature because of that inherent publicness of, of a performer who then became a composer. That makes a lot of sense. Did the women musicians tour around? I I would imagine it might have been somewhat dangerous at that time for a woman to travel alone. The 18th century is is the age of the grand tour, right? There was finally this political 
kind of stability in Europe that people could travel safely. That's how Venice became the Vegas of, of Europe. And so there were women musicians who toured with their family or with a group of other musicians. For example, I mean, even if you think of Mozart's father, Leopold, they would travel with his sister as well, right? And so some women did travel with their families or sometimes with their husbands as well. Well, you've mentioned several women while we've been talking that have been composers and musicians. So I would say that there is there not a widespread ignorance about women composers of the past? Is it just me? <laughs> oh, it's definitely not you. It's definitely not you. No, no, no. I mean, I, th- I think it's very true because, it, but it's a project that people have been working on, you know, especially, you know, musicologists and historians have really been working very hard since the 1980s, really, to uncover women in our musical past. And they've they've done so very successfully the the missing step i mean you're doing basically what it takes you know one podcast one show at a time giving people the opportunity to hear some of these names and they weren't all as i said they weren't all composers but there certainly were composers and there's more of an effort now institutionally and that's the thing in musical production now you really need institutional support to break out of the mozart beethoven cycle because audiences love that music and that com- for completely understandable reasons, right? That's music that I teach and that I enjoy. But what you really need is kind of institutions who are deciding we're going to program this music. And that's one of the wonderful things at UNT. You know, I had uh, students who took a graduate seminar on women in- and gender in the 18th century. And then they ended up performing music by women in their recitals. And so it's the kind of thing that is, you know, it takes time to, to change historical narratives. Yeah, it does. And you're doing it, especially with your research and your classes and your podcast. In your <laughs> Ollie lecture, you describe the story of one girl's musical upbringing in France, Nancy McDonald. Can you tell us about her? Sure. So Nancy was the daughter of a Irish descended French general, General MacDonald. He made his ascent in the French military, especially during the revolutionary decade. And supposedly he was asked first to to execute the coup that eventually Napoleon executed. So there's kind of this alternative history that didn't happen uh, with her father that's interesting. So her father was away at wars from very early in her childhood, because she was born in the early 1790s. And so she was put in a girl's school just outside of Paris that was run by a woman who had been a lady-in-waiting to Marie Antoinette, and of course was out of a job because Marie Antoinette had been guillotined. And so Nancy, we have all of her letters to her father from when she was about five years old up until really into her adulthood, but up until she was around 18 when she was married. And so I studied her, I read all of her letters and realized that music played a really important role in her upbringing. And so it gave me an opportunity to think about what music meant in a woman's everyday life during that time. And what did you find out? What was interesting for Nancy was that the uncertainty of her future 
you could really see in the way that she was practicing music. So her father was really well respected, but there were times when he was on the outs with Napoleon because Napoleon was basically jealous of him. And so her future was uncertain. Whether or not she was going to end up married off into uh, a really well-to-do, this new military elite that was being built around Napoleon, where she would have been expected to play the keyboard for her friends and sing romances and play the harp, or whether she might end up as someone who maybe even did need to make money off of music, like maybe teaching or something, right? And so you kind of see how music could have gone one of two ways for her. Now, she did end up having a very happy courtship with a man who also loved music and they performed together when they were courting and they ended up getting married and his family bought her new instruments you know, when they moved into their apartment or when they were married in Paris. And so she ended up having a, um, a more bourgeois uh, adulthood with, with music. But it was, it really gave a window into what a girl saw as the possibilities for music. And it's not to make it sound so strictly economic either, because it was clear that music was something that consoled her. When her friends grew up and left the school and she was feeling isolated, she was practicing much more. She started taking harmony lessons which means she would have been learning the kind of mechanics of what you would have to do to compose. And she, you know, she started to study music pretty hard when in periods of her childhood, when she was feeling really lonely and missing her family and friends. And so it kind of had this dual function as both a personal retreat, but also a potentially useful skill. Interesting. What a treasure to have all of those letters. It is. It really is. That's once I realized, because I, I had been researching Madame Campon, the woman who ran the, the girls' school, um, because I found it fascinating. You know, I found in the archives that she had been, she had asked the revolutionary government for a bunch of materials to, to open this school. And she asked for quite a few specific musical instruments and scores. And it was very clear that she had been steeped in Marie Antoinette's musical tastes, and she was asking for a lot of the same instruments and scores that the former queen would have would have had. So my interest had begun there. And when I realized that one of her students' letters were extant and in such so complete, I decided to take a look at them. And it was it was just incredible to to read through really a young woman's life. And I mean, there's so much more than just discussion of music in those letters. But that's what I what I focused on, of course. Yeah, I mean, it must have made your historian's heart beat <laughs> rapidly. <laughs> it did, and that's the thing because we don't have we don't have a whole lot of you know part of the, here another reason that we just don't have as much information about women as musicians is just you, you don't have as many ego documents from women necessarily, right? Like you don't have women musicians sitting down to say, I am a musician, right? You don't have those kind of those sustained sets of sources that can really give you insight into those kind of experiences. So it's a re- it was a real opportunity to, to be able to, to read a set of letters that lasted for such a, an extended period of time and that actually talked about music. 
Well, I got a real kick out of your talking about your initial ambitions to write for the Rolling Stone magazine. I love it, by the way. <laughs> I still have those ambitions. I haven't completely given up on it. I pitched a story a year or so ago and the editor said, no, but ask me about another one. So I'm going to keep at it. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, you have to let us know when that story goes out. There's another podcast. <laughs> now, how do you see the music scene today? comparing with the musical scene that you're talking about? Clearly, there's more opportunity for all kinds of people to be part of the music industry. But there are still glaring inequities, you know, and this is something that a lot of institutions have acknowledged, right? I mean, everything from the Grammy Awards to representation in major orchestras, these are conversations that are being had across music. And those conversations have to continue because there are more women in music. There are more of all kinds of people in music, uh, but it still does tend to be a, a male and really a white field, in, especially when you're talking about classical music. And so it's a conversation that's still being had, and that's a good thing. Women's history is never a linear upward progression, right? There's always twists and turns. And and so I think that there are a lot of really fantastic initiatives right now to support women in music. And those are really hopeful things that are going to keep contributing to that story that's still being told. Well, it's so good that the conversation is out there. When you teach women's studies as it relates to the history of music, what is it that you most want your students to know and understand? And what kind of questions do they have? What I want my students to understand, and and this is in all of my, my music history classes, is that history is written. And sometimes we need to go back and reassess the narrative. And sometimes we need to craft new ones. And... To me, that's the most important lesson for students to learn. And in my personal research, that means shifting focus from music to musicians. And that opens up a much richer and diverse and and I would say even more historically accurate picture of what musical life was like in the classical era. And that can be really messy, but it's also really rewarding. And so I think the questions that students have when they come to my classes... I think they come to those classes, you know, when you sign up for a class about about women and gender in the 18th century, they tend to come thinking, okay, well, we'll look at music by women, right? And my project to get students to think about musicianship in a much broader way is um, is not just about women, but it's it's about telling music history in general. That music history is made up of a lot of different kinds of people doing a lot of different kinds of things. And you could even think of that in today's day and age, right? Where you have people who are lyricists and producers and sound engineers and people who work at Spotify and people, you know, you have the, the music world is such a vast, rich world. And it's worth thinking about all the people who are involved in that world. And so I think that that is at the heart of the courses that I teach. Oh, that's terrific. It, because it's so often for people just to think of whoever is in the limelight uh, involved around even a particular song or 
genre music or whatever. And there is so much more to that. So that is, that's really something. And I have to go back to your comment that I just loved about the fact that history is written because I know just from experience of the different podcasts I've done speaking with experts in a whole variety of different fields, I understand in many instances, the history I learned in school was definitely not the whole story. And (laughs) (laughs) fortunately, as you say, the conversation is out there and many different perspectives and aspects of history are coming to light. And I I find it very exciting. Now is an incredibly exciting moment to write history because I think that there is an honesty, there's a willingness to look honestly at the past and and say what happened and then ask ourselves, and what do we do with that? And you know, when you think about even just in the last four to eight years, how often people are invoking the late 18th century, this precise time period that I'm talking about, people are constantly going back in, in the United States to what did the founding fathers say? What did the founding fathers say? And the fact that that's a time that we still go back to is a testament to the fact that we are living a legacy of the late 18th century today. We are still living that. And in music, we are too, right? It's still Mozart and Beethoven, who are these touchstones. And so to have an opportunity where everyone is so primed to think about that time period and to think about what it means for us now makes it really exciting to be uncovering all of these voices that, whether it was because of our sources or our methods, were were silenced up until now. I love that. That's such a great ending here. (laughs) At the end of our podcast, what an optimistic note. Thank you so much. Interesting subject and a very interesting conversation, Rebecca. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Rebecca Jeffroy Schwinden. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. 